You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. So I'm here today to talk about the second chapter of Mark. It's our series uh, coming up uh, in the next few weeks, talking about Mark. And today we're in the second chapter. Uh, Because Mark moves very quickly, uh, I once described it to someone as almost exhausting uh, because he just says, Jesus did this and immediately he did this and immediately he did this all the way through the book. Because uh, there's so much in here, there's a lot to occupy us in the second chapter alone. Now I'm sure that all of you took Daryl's advice last week and read the second chapter of Mark before today. So you know that in there, there's a lot of things to digest. There is the forgiveness and healing of the paralytic who got lowered down through the ceiling. There is the calling of Matthew, Levi, and, and the party he gave in Jesus' honor. There's Jesus discussing of fasting, and there's also Jesus teaching about the Sabbath. That's an awful lot to cover in one Sunday. We'd be here all day, so I think I will focus on just one part of that, and that is the calling of Levi. And we find that in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A brief prayer before we continue with this. Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Levi was a tax collector. Now, none of us are really thrilled with tax collectors, at least in the general sense of things. April 15th is not our favorite day of the month. He was an agent, though, of a system that was known for its corruption. And uh, it was an odd system because in, in that time, tax collectors were not employees of the government. Tax collectors were, were people who extorted money from their fellow citizens. You see, the way it worked was Rome would want a certain amount of money from the people. In order to get that, men would buy a franchise, if you will. They would buy the 
rights to collect taxes in a certain area. And they would mark up the taxes. But they didn't collect it themselves. They hired someone else to do that. Usually a man like Levi, who was a citizen of the province or the city where taxes were to be collected. And they would mark it up. So we have this system where in order to make it all work, everybody marks it up. And the last place, the lowest rung in this, is the tax collector. He's the one that dealt directly with the citizens. And he would mark up the taxes as high as he thought he could possibly get away with. It's no surprise that men like Levi were despised. They were thought of as corrupt. They were thought of as traitors. People hated them. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. They weren't allowed to even be witnesses in a court of law because who could trust a tax collector? They were hated. Now, that may sound uh, harsh to us because for us, tax collectors are just employees of the government. That's not the way it was back then. These men were as much outcasts as lepers. And yet here in this incident, we see Jesus reaching out to this despised tax collector. He reaches out and he asks Levi to follow him. Well, in light of what Levi's response was, we might ask ourselves, just what did Levi know about Jesus? We can't take this in a vacuum. He must have known something about Jesus. After all, Levi was collecting taxes in Capernaum. That was sort of Jesus' home base. So he must have heard about Jesus' teaching. He must have known about the miracles he was performing. Perhaps he even, in a clandestine way, to avoid being recognized, stood on the edge of the crowd and listened to Jesus as he taught. For Jesus did a lot of teaching around Capernaum. And maybe Matthew would go home and he would think about what he heard Jesus teach and ponder what it was like. Now, as a tax collector in Capernaum, he also would have known Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he would have heard that they had left their fishing business and decided to follow Jesus. And he may have thought, I wonder what that's like, following a man like Jesus. But of course, a man like Jesus would never allow a man like Levi to follow him. And then suddenly, here's Jesus standing before the tax booth and asking Levi to follow him. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And Levi got up and followed him. That's even more amazing. The faith of Levi. Faith, by the way, is one of those really fascinating things when we talk about faith. We talk about faith as, it's, as if it's something we ourselves are responsible for. But the truth is that we exercise faith because God gave us the faith in the first place. It, too, is an act of grace on God's part. Anyway, Levi, because of his faith, got up and left. And he followed Jesus. Now, Luke tells us that he 
got up and he left everything to follow Jesus. That's an amazing statement. How many of us, when we decided to follow Jesus, left everything to do it? Now, the other disciples left everything as well. But they all knew that if things went bad, if they were wrong, they could always go back to their old professions. And in fact, the fishermen that I just mentioned did go back to fishing after the crucifixion. But Matthew knew that if he got up and left that tax booth and followed Jesus, he could never go back. His old life was gone forever. He would never be hired as a tax collector again, and yet he would still be forever an outcast. He left everything to follow Jesus. That's an amazing thing when we think about it. He followed despite all of that. Now, those who have been following Jesus up to that time, no doubt were thinking to themselves, Jesus, don't you know who this is? We, we can't have a guy like this hanging out with us. It's going to ruin our reputation. Look at the image having a tax collector will, will present to crowds. We can't do this. And I'm sure the crowds thought the same things. And the Pharisees that were watching this whole thing unfold were absolutely scandalized. This was unheard of. This was a terrible human being this Matthew guy. But Jesus, who could cleanse the leper, Jesus, who could raise the dead, heal the blind, make the deaf hear, Jesus demonstrates through this calling that can he also turn a tax collector and a sinner into a saint. He could turn this unredeemable man into an apostle, into an evangelist. And he did just that. A short time later, according to Mark, we see Jesus, and let me say exactly, then Levi held a banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Well, it seems like Levi was so happy about this relationship with Jesus that he wanted to share this good news with everybody he knew. So he invited all of his friends to come and meet Jesus. And since Levi would have had no reputable friends, everybody he invited was a sinner and a tax collector. It's a whole room full of these. And Jesus was among them. Jesus went among them to teach them and talk to them and get to know them. The Pharisees complained to Jesus' disciples that Jesus was hanging out with these guys. Why in the world, they said, is he hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? A thing they considered an un unrighteous and unclean act. No righteous person would ever have a meal with sinners and tax collectors. He could not then, therefore, be a righteous person, and he certainly couldn't be the Messiah because he's having dinner with sinners. It's interesting to me that when they use the word sinner, 
They didn't mean simply someone who commits a sin. When the Pharisees use that word, a lot of your Bibles will have quotation marks around the word sinner because it doesn't just mean someone who sins. In the Pharisees' mind, a sinner was anyone who did not or could not live up to their standard of holiness. Not God's standard, their standard. And my goodness, what a standard that was. God gave us Ten Commandments. The interpreters of the law in examining the Old Testament identified 613 laws that everyone must follow to be righteous. Not satisfied with that, over the course of time, the teachers and the rabbis had added to that. In order to keep you from breaking one of those laws, they defined all of these laws down to a detail that's absolutely incredible. For example, one of those 613 laws, and one of the Ten Commandments, in fact, is don't work on the Sabbath. Well, they decided they had to define work. Just what is work? How far can you walk? How many steps can you take? How heavy a burden can you carry? Two grapes, by the way. That's what they decided. If you're going to write something down, how many letters can you write before it's now qualified as work? You couldn't write two consecutive letters. This was all an oral tradition. <laughs> it's horrible. It's an oral tradition in Jesus' time. It has since all been written down in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is over 800 pages long. Is it any surprise that Jesus said this, quoted in Luke 11:46, And you experts of the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. That's why he was so critical of the Pharisees. That's why later he would say things like, you reject the law of God and follow the law of man. Because all of these laws were laws of men. When Jesus became aware of the complaints of the Pharisees, he answered them. It's not the healthy, he said, who need a doctor, but the sick. Simply, he said, I go where the need is great. I'm a doctor. I go where sick people are. That's what he did. The calling of sinners like Matthew, and like us, by the way, the calling of sinners like Matthew to follow him, Jesus is asserting his absolute power to transform lives. He not only gave Levi a new name, Matthew, he gave Levi a new life. He completely transformed Levi. It was, after all, why he came. He said famously, the Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost. He said that, by the way, after he had dinner with another tax collector named Zacchaeus. Seems he liked having dinner with tax collectors. He compared himself to a doctor. Now, doctors visit the sick 
and his call was to heal the sick. What sort of a doctor refuses all but the healthy? Now, Kathy and I really like our doctor. He helps keep us healthy. But we would not go to him if that's all he did. If, if we discovered that once we actually got sick, he no longer wanted to see us, we would be finding another doctor. What kind of a doctor only, he only works with healthy people? That's what his criticism of the Pharisees was. The Pharisees were righteous, they claimed. And Jesus was saying, if you're really as righteous as you claim to be, you should welcome me going out and talking to the morally sick, to all of these sinners, if you were really righteous. Hmm. Interesting. They thought that they were so righteous that it was beneath them to talk to a sinner. Matthew Henry wrote, it was as if Jesus was saying, when you make a feast, you invite the coldly orthodox and the piously self-righteous. When I make a feast, I invite those who are most conscious of their sin and whose need of God is the greatest. You know, it's interesting. When I first became a Christian, uh, I was talking to a business owner, and we were actually talking about items of faith. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but he knew I was, and we were discussing this, and he said, it's odd to me. He says, I'm an employee who used to be a drunk. He got himself in trouble with the law a lot. And he was a terrible human being, and then he got religion, meaning he became a Christian. He says, I wonder why it's only ex-drunks that become Christian. That's not a true statement, but from his point of view, it was. Now, I wasn't wise enough at the time to properly answer that question. It wasn't actually until I began to deal with young men who were incarcerated. And then I realized, if there's one group of people that you do not have to convince are sinners in need of a savior, it's drunks and convicts. They all know. They may not think there's any hope for them. They may have other barriers to overcome, but you don't have to convince them they're sinners. They already know that. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, I'm going to go to people who actually know that they're sinners in need of a Savior. You guys will only talk to people you think don't need a Savior. Again, he compared himself to the doctor. You know, we have to realize here that when Jesus made that statement, he wasn't declaring the Pharisees to be sound or righteous by any stretch of the imagination. That was their estimation of themselves, not God's estimation of them. They, uh, they declared themselves to be righteous. He was not saying that there are people somewhere out there who are so good that they don't really need a savior. 
people who have somehow managed by their own effort to lift themselves up to a level to where God has to accept them and declare them righteous. Jesus was not saying that. He was saying quite the opposite. But he was also saying, I came to talk to people who don't think of themselves as, as so righteous they don't need me. I came to talk to people and to invite people who know they need help and who want that help. That's why I came. We need to note something here. Jesus did not and does not condone sin. The fact that he went to this dinner and hung out with sinners does not mean he condoned sin. He went there because he wanted to deliver them from their sin, not participate in it. He wanted to deliver them from their sin. That's important for us to realize. The Pharisees thought that just him being there somehow contaminated him. He knew that his being there would lead at least some of them to turn away from their sin and follow him and therefore be made whole and righteous before God. It's also important for us to for us to guard ourselves so that we're not so determined to maintain our own holiness that we never cultivate friendships with the unbeliever. It always amazes me when I talk to people about evangelism, about sharing Christ, how many people in churches today have no unsaved friends. They have deliberately, over the course of time, removed from their social circle everyone who's not saved. What? <laughs> how are you going to... Do, we like seeing people up there, don't we? We like seeing people come to Christ and get baptized. The truth is, no one will ever get baptized if a believer doesn't talk to an unbeliever. If we don't establish relationships with those who are sinners, get them to trust us because we genuinely care for them and love them, and share the gospel with them. Pharisees would never do that. But of course, none of us would ever fall into that trap. At least I hope we don't. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 14, how then that they call on someone they've not believed in and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And now how can they have heard how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Paul was not talking about people like me or Daryl. Paul was not writing this to a conference of pastors. Paul was writing this to a church. And he was telling the church, that's all of you and all of the people in church, he was telling them that how is anyone going to believe in Jesus Christ if you won't share them, to share him with them? That's what Matthew did. He had a party. You don't have to have a party, but Matthew invited everyone to meet Jesus. And that's what we should be doing too. 
That's the job of every Christian. In whatever way he's capable of doing is to share his faith with someone else. Sadly, we lose sight of that fact. And we forget, as I said before, that if we want to see people come to Christ, we have to be willing to talk to sinners. You know, Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, telling about this same incident that we're reading about in, in Mark today, says that Jesus also said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, you and I might think that is good advice, that it's a sound teaching of Jesus. It was much more than that to the Pharisees. It was a serious rebuke to the Pharisees. In Jesus' day, when you quoted a little short phrase of, of, test, of Scripture, it was meant to bring up the whole, the whole thing in context. And these studiers of the law, these Pharisees, would have known this was a prophecy from Hosea. And they would have known the entire context of this simple statement. And they would have understood what Jesus was saying. Now, in the time of Hosea, the people of Israel claimed to follow God. They, did, they had all of, the, all of this, the feasts. They did all of the sacrifices. They were doing all of these things. And yet their hearts were not with God. They had deserted God. They even, on the side, worshipped idols and other gods. And God spoke to them through Isaiah. Now here in Isaiah 6, 4 through 6, is what Jesus said in some context. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you into pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what the Pharisees would have heard when Jesus said this. When people reject God, when people reject God's covenant and turn away from him, as they did in Hosea's time, and as I fear they're doing increasingly in our own time, then they begin to abuse each other. And we see that today, don't we? This is a warning to us. This isn't just a, a rebuke for the Pharisees. It's a warning to us. When our love for God grows cold, so will our love for each other. And that will lead to all kinds of problems. The Ten Commandments, if you remember... Four of them had to do with our relationship to God, and six of them had to do with our relationship to each other. And if you don't have the four, you can't have the six. You have to love God before you can truly love your fellow man. The simple fact is, if we love God, we love our fellow man. 1 John 4.20 Makes that pretty clear. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen 
cannot love God whom they have not seen. If we're not loving each other, if we don't have compassion and sympathy for each other, if we don't reach out to each other, then that's proof, according to John, that we don't love God. Because if you love God, then the love he has for your fellow man, for your brothers and sisters, that love shows through you. Not perfectly, because we're flawed. But if you reject God, how are you going to love your brothers and sisters when you reject the, the source of all love? Hosea pointed out that there was no genuine love for God in his time, so there was no love for neighbors. And someone, I don't remember who, I read it, I tried to find it so I could give him credit for this. I don't remember who, but I've always remembered this. They were false-hearted toward God, therefore hard-hearted toward each other. And that's what happens when we reject God. Or when we think we are righteous because of what we do. When we are self-righteous. Ritual sacrifices and cold observance of the letter of the law are useless. And it's a sure path to self-righteousness. The important thing in God's sight is a pure heart. In fact, without that, without loving God, he rejects all of our coldly uh, righteous acts. Our tithing, useless. Church attendance, of no value. Reading the Bible, pointless. Prayer, I don't hear you. He actually says that in Isaiah. If you, don't, if you don't love each other, if you don't love God and love each other, then nothing you can do will be acceptable in God's eyes. In fact, in Isaiah, he said, it stinks. It's not a pleasant aroma to God when we do all of these things we do. If we hate our brother, if we hate our neighbor, it's a foul odor to God. And the only way around that is to love God first. Matthew invited his friends, tax collectors and sinners, one and all, to meet Jesus. And Jesus met with them. He was the guest of honor. Today, Jesus continues to call the worst of the worst, like you and me. He continues to call us. He continues to call people to come to a banquet where he is going to reach out to us. He continues to do that. Jesus rebuked those Pharisees. He rebuked them for their hard-heartedness and for their lack of compassion and for their self-righteousness. But we're not Pharisees, right? So what does all that to do with us? What does all that to do with us? Well, first, are we like the Pharisees? Maybe we ought to ask ourselves that question. Are we like the Pharisees? Is the preservation of our own holiness more important to us, and in fact so important to us, that we won't reach out a hand to help the sinners in the world? Are we like a doctor who refuses to visit the sick because we're afraid we'll catch it? 
That we won't go out and talk to sinners because we're afraid that instead of us influencing them for Christ, they will influence us and make us sinners. Is that what the problem is? I don't know. It was certainly what the Pharisees' problem was. Their religion was selfish. They had no concern with saving other people. In fact, they refused to allow the outsiders in at all. They didn't care. They had forgotten that that actually is the surest way to lose your soul. What does it profit to man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? They didn't love God. They loved their own righteousness. The form of goodness expressed by the Pharisees was expressed in condemnation and unforgiveness rather than love, sympathy, and forgiveness. That's how they express their righteousness, by condemning others. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The so-called righteous people in that story, a priest and a Levite, not only passed by the injured man, they actually went out of their way to avoid him because they didn't want to be made unclean. The purpose of that story is to teach us that that is the wrong response. The so-called self-righteous men in that story were not righteous at all. I pray that God will keep all of us from having an attitude like that. Where when we see someone in effect, lying in a ditch, we will not avoid them. We will seek them out and try to help them. Secondly, are we more concerned with criticism and condemnation than we are with encouragement? You know, last week, Daryl talked about this, so I won't talk a whole lot about it. But Daryl talked about this. He pointed out how easy it is for us to see something wrong and condemn it and let it go at that when our first response really ought to be to pray for that person and to see if there's a way we can help heal that sin. That ought to be our attitude toward others. After all, you all were once unbelievers. You all were once condemned in God's eyes. And some believer somewhere reached out a hand to you, shared the gospel with you, and you became a follower of Christ. It's not supposed to end there. We're supposed to do the same thing to the next people in line. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 makes that really clear. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I have to admit that last sentence is something I really guard myself against, because I am so prone to fall into that trap. You see, pride will make us think we're something when we're nothing. 
Pride will make us think we're holy when we're not. Pride will make us think that we are righteous and have the right, therefore, to condemn someone else when only God has that right. Pride will do that. It'll make us think we're something when we're not. Finally, the Pharisees practiced a religion that considered, that was consisted almost entirely of outward orthodoxy. They followed the rules. If we do that, if all of our Christian life is spent trying to follow the rules and therefore make ourselves righteous before God, and we never reach out a hand to someone else, we never reach out to someone who is suffering, someone who is an unbeliever, someone who is a sinner, someone who has made a complete mess of their life, if we never are willing to reach out to that person, then we're not Christians. That's a hard statement, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. James, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead faith. I don't want dead faith. I want none of you to have dead faith. I don't want to be in a church filled with people who have dead faith. I want to be in a church that loves to share the gospel with someone else and bring people in. You see, we see in the calling of Levi the divine grace available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, was an unredeemable man. Even in his own eyes, he was a sinner. He was a traitor. He was despised by everyone around him. And yet, Jesus called him. Jesus called him to him, and by the grace of Christ, he accepted that call. And he began to follow Jesus. Jesus gave him a new name, but he gave him, more importantly, a new life, as I said earlier. He gave Matthew a new life. And he can do the same for for anyone. That's what he's here for. That's why he came. And he's done it for everyone in this room who's accepted that call. He's given us a new life. Not a new name yet, but that's coming if I understand the book of Revelation, right? (laughs) That new name part's coming. But he certainly has given us all a new life. In his brief ministry here on earth, Jesus healed the sick, caused the lame to walk, gave sight to the blind, called the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, even raised people from the dead. But all of those miracles pale in comparison to this. He came to save souls. He came to redeem those who were completely and totally lost and bring them back into a loving relationship with God the Father. And because of what he did, because of his 
his mission on earth because of what he did on the cross we are no longer bound for hell but are destined to be a member of God's family co-heirs with Christ to live forever with him in paradise it's always by grace that we're saved always never by our own actions he's calling everyone He's calling us. You see, in the calling of Levi, we learn one important fact. There's no such thing as an unredeemable person. Everyone can be saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. They just have to hear the message in order for that to happen. The church should be a healing place. The church should be a place where sick people come and get well. And the longer we're here, the healthier we get. But it's, it's a hospital. It's a place where people come. And since everyone in this room is a sinner, saved by grace, we should welcome other sinners in our midst. We should invite them. We should be happy when they come in. We should be glad to see sinners join us. Because when they do, you know what? Jesus just might show up at the party. He just might be here. Because that's why he went to that party. He'll certainly come to this one. He'll certainly come to this one. Now, I know certainly most of you have followed Christ. You've heard that call and you've answered it. I can't 100% say that everyone here has or everyone listening on the live stream has. And certainly not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. But there's somebody who, who today realizes that they've only followed the rules, that they've only tried to clean themselves up, that they've never actually answered the call of Jesus to follow him. I encourage you today to do that. Follow him. And he'll lead you exactly where you need to go, to heaven. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you today realizing that you have sent your Son to provide a way of salvation for us. That apart from him, there is no salvation. That he is genuinely the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to you except through him. Father, I, I ask that you make us fully aware of that. Make us humble. Make us realize that. And Lord, if there are any here today who have not answered the call to follow you, I ask that you, you, you call them, open their hearts to receive the truth of the gospel and to indeed get up and follow you, even if it means leaving everything behind. Lord, we know that no one is unredeemable in your sight. And we ask that you deliver us in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.